Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 544 for the 28th of May, 2017. This week, a ransomware attack that crippled some 200,000 computers in 150 countries was a commercial failure for the crooks. But let's not get complacent. Libraries are more essential today than ever, and many are stepping up to provide services that are needed in a digital age. In short circuits, last week's program was canceled because of an unexpected medical emergencies. Are medical emergencies ever expected? Anyway, I'll explain what happened, and you can listen or skip as you prefer. In spare parts, only on the website, the Weather Channel adds a lot of non-weather components to its app, and mindfulness is helpful for adults. Maybe it can help children, too. Apparently, Britain's National Health Service hasn't kept its computers updated and patched. They weren't alone as a massive ransomware attack crippled some 200,000 computers in more than 150 countries. An anonymous investigator posting his malware tech found a way to shut down the attack temporarily, but he predicted the developers would quickly remove the flaw that made it possible to stop the first wave. So now it's up to you. Fortunately, that second wave never materialized. This part of TechBiter Worldwide was intended for use on the May 21st program that was canceled abruptly because of a medical emergency. If you're interested, there are details about that at the end of today's program. In a program on the 23rd of April, I wrote about exploits released by shadow brokers. The exploits were created by the U.S. National Security Agency. Microsoft noted that the patches had been provided for all of the exploits described, but patches made available does not mean patches actually installed. Those whose systems were compromised had failed to install patches or were using outdated or no longer supported versions. While this may sound like blaming the victim, I think it's more like starting a cross-country trip in a car that you know has bald tires, faulty brakes, and a leaky gas tank. Those of us who use computers need to accept responsibility for keeping those computers in good working order. Microsoft routinely makes security updates available and sometimes even forcefully installs those security updates. Although I was certain that all updates were in place on my computers, my first action was to check for new updates as the scope of the attack became apparent. Anyone who's running a version of Windows earlier than Windows 7, and organizations that are running Microsoft Exchange versions older than 2010, are not protected. But there's an irony there, and we'll get to that in a moment. More recent versions will be secure if they have been updated. So now would be a really good time to check updates, and if any exist for your computer, get them installed. When the exploits were revealed a month ago, Microsoft Security Group Manager Phil Meisner said customers still running prior versions of those products are encouraged to upgrade to a supported offering. At the time, Microsoft also noted that those who are running the company's free antivirus software or who have Windows Update enabled should be protected. Because of this unprecedented attack, 
Microsoft did release an unprecedented security patch for users of Windows XP and Windows Server 2003, even though those products are no longer officially supported. The malware was named WannaCry. It encrypts files on the user's computer and then demands $300. If that amount isn't paid in six hours, the price goes up. So who are the victims? Well, initially, the expectation was that most of the victims would be people who were still running Windows XP. And here's the irony I mentioned earlier. According to Kaspersky Labs, that's not the case. Nearly all infected computers were running Windows 7. About 60% of the victims have Windows 7 64-bit, and nearly 32% have Windows 7 32-bit. Windows 7 home users accounted for about 7% of victims, and if you add that up, you'll get 99%. Windows 7 users should have been safe if they had installed all patches Microsoft had released. So, the speculation is that many users missed or ignored a patch that was released in April. That patch specifically addressed exploits released by shadow brokers that hadn't previously been corrected. In addition to Britain's National Health Service, other affected organizations included the Russian Interior Ministry, colleges and universities in China, international firms such as FedEx, which didn't officially advise customers about that until 2 p.m. on Saturday, and communications agencies in many countries. The malware actively seeks out other vulnerable computers on a network, so an infected machine taken into an office and connected to the network would attempt to affect all other computers that are attached. Despite the large scale of the attack, it was essentially a monetary failure for the crooks, but just because this attack wasn't as bad as it could have been doesn't mean the next one will be. When you think of high-tech, do you think of libraries? Maybe you don't think about libraries as high-tech operations, but really they are. Many have high-speed internet access that patrons can use for free. E-books are commonly available. Online database searches. Some libraries even run classes to help people use their tablet computers and smartphones. So libraries definitely fit in the high-tech classification, and they are essential. This is one of those non-political topics that somehow has been politicized in recent years. Public libraries receive support from tax dollars, just as police departments and fire departments do. But to some, they seem unimportant and no longer needed. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is primarily an opinion piece. Think of it as an editorial. The idea occurred to me when my wife mentioned that the Worthington Library displays what they call a binge box. As Phyllis put it, they usually have five movies around a theme. Fun if you're not a Netflix person and want to hibernate for a couple of days. Libraries evolve. They keep up with the times. Benjamin Franklin is probably best known in the library community for founding the Library Company of Philadelphia in 1731. It was America's first lending library, and it can lay claim to being predecessor to the first free public library. Lending libraries purchase things and lend them without charge to those who have a library card. The card is free in most cases. Exceptions may include some of the largest libraries that charge fees to people who don't live in the area. The New York Public Library, for example. 
Any person who lives, works, or attends school or pays property taxes in New York State is eligible to receive a New York Public Library card free of charge. The New York Public Library used to charge an annual fee for non-residents, but that seems no longer to be the case. Short-term cards are available for visitors to the city. But this is all about local libraries and local users. Libraries once housed only books. Then came films, records, and more recently CDs, DVDs, and at some libraries, artworks and even home appliances. The main thing that libraries house, though, is knowledge. And perhaps that's why funding for libraries has become politicized. I live in an area that is served by many excellent libraries. The Columbus Metropolitan Library with 23 locations. Worthington Public Libraries with three. Upper Arlington Public Library, also three. Westerville Public Library, Ohio State University's Thompson Library, the State Library of Ohio, just to name some of them. Most of the libraries are part of a consortium that gives patrons of one library access to resources in the others. Throughout the country, some library systems are stronger, others are weaker, but they all exist to store and share knowledge and entertainment. In some cases, knowledge is available without even having to leave your house. Britannica Library, Funk and Wagnall's New World Encyclopedia, Gale Virtual Reference Library, Merriam-Webster Unabridged Dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, World Book Online, those are all among the resources available to me from home. The Oxford English Dictionary Online subscription would cost $300 a year. Britannica Library would cost $70 a year. Some might like to point to Wikipedia, which is a valuable resource in its own right, one that I pay a small and optional monthly fee to use, but it's not Britannica. It's definitely not the Oxford English Dictionary. Having access to these resources from home is a value not to be overlooked. Or maybe you'd like to have access to America's obituaries and death notices for genealogical research. The Columbus Dispatch back to 1985, National Geographic articles back to 1888, the New York Times back to 1851, U.S. newspapers from across the country, or Zinio's full range of digitized magazines, all available online. The list is enormous. Birds of North America, online courses from lynda.com, Science Online, Consumer Reports, Medline, Homework Help for Students, Resources for Scholarly Research, and thousands of electronic books, audio files, and videos. Some you can download, some you can stream. These come from digital downloads, Freegal Music, Google Books, and Hoopla. A recent newsletter from the Worthington Library described what they call the Artful Summer. During the Artful Summer, make the library your creation station where experts will lead sessions on sculpting, painting, drawing, and more. Oh, and don't worry, there will still be plenty of opportunities for you and your kids or grandkids to meet animals, talk books, and play games. Some libraries even make it possible to obtain a passport, something that usually involves standing in line for a while at the post office, and all you need is an appointment. And I mentioned lynda.com, probably the premier instructional website. It's available because I'm a Worthington Library patron. Linda was acquired by LinkedIn, and then LinkedIn was acquired by Microsoft. If you sign up for lynda.com, you'll pay $30 a month for access to the plan that includes downloadable practice files and the ability to watch the sessions offline. Instead of $360 a year, would you prefer to pay zero? Your public library might make those programs available. 
it's worth checking. Clearly, I have been talking about the libraries I use. Worthington, Columbus, occasionally Upper Arlington, and Grandview Heights. Your library may offer this access. It may offer access I don't have. All libraries matter, every single one of them. Your public library is probably supported by tax dollars, often in the form of issues that need to be voted on. The next time there's a tax issue on your ballot for libraries, I hope you'll support it. You can also help by donating books, not to be used for lending, but to be sold. If your library accepts books, either directly or through a Friends of the Library organization, the proceeds from selling the books will be used to supplement tax dollars. We need libraries today more than ever. In Short Circuits, well, kind of a long article this week. It's an explanation of last week's unexpected absence. Ironically, on Monday of last week, the program was well ahead of the normal writing schedule. The second item, the one about libraries, was complete, and the first item needed only to be updated late in the week. Because of a medical emergency, there wasn't time to complete even the small remaining amount, so you might be interested in what that emergency was. If not, this is the last item. Feel free to skip to the end. The shortest possible version of the story is this. My older daughter suffered acute liver failure on May 15th, was unconscious from Tuesday through Friday, had a liver transplant operation Friday evening, and is now exceeding all expectations on her recovery track. That's a 250,000-word novel in a single sentence. So let me give you the slightly longer version. I'll start at the end and then go back to the beginning. Elizabeth has had migraine headaches for years. Medication used to treat migraines can damage the liver. She also took Excedrin and sometimes Tylenol. Both of those contain acetaminophen, which can also cause liver damage. There seems to be some correlation between migraine headaches, particularly severe ones, with fatty liver disease, and that condition was present too. Although the additional Tylenol hit may be what pushed the liver into failure, it appears that this would have happened sooner or later in any event. A pathology report we received on Thursday confirmed that the liver was diseased well before the time that her husband found her unconscious on the floor late Monday afternoon, the 15th. Doctors at Fairfield Medical Center in Lancaster reported that her temperature and blood sugar were both dangerously low. They also noticed the elevated amount of acetaminophen in her blood, diagnosed poisoning, and started treatment. To succeed, this treatment has to be started within a few hours of the onset, and that probably had been on Sunday or earlier. In other words, it was already too late. She was awake but confused on Monday evening. By Tuesday morning, she seemed to be a little more responsive when she was transferred to Ohio State University Hospital, but she was less responsive on arrival and by early afternoon, non-responsive. Intensive care unit doctors and liver specialists continued the treatment that had begun at Fairfield, but began to address the possibility that the liver would not recover. Most of Wednesday was spent meeting with various groups that deal with the transplant process. We found that acute liver failure automatically pushes the patient to near the top of the waiting list because it is an immediately life-threatening situation. By Friday morning, hope was fading that the liver would regenerate on its own, and a compatible liver had been found in Columbus. 
Ten or more members of the medical, surgical, and intensive care teams discussed the case and then recommended that we proceed with the transplant. The two primary concerns were brain swelling that would be fatal and the potential inability to find another liver if her condition deteriorated. Her husband, his family, and our family agreed with the recommendation. Less than an hour later, a surgical room had been prepared. The liver had arrived and been evaluated. and Liz had been taken for what was expected to be a six- to eight-hour procedure. In fact, the surgery took less than four hours, and the surgical team was delighted. She was expected to be unconscious for perhaps several days in the surgical ICU, but she was awake and alert less than 24 hours later, and within 48 hours she had been moved to a normal room. Given her condition and mental attitude, it would be easy to think that Liz's operation had been to remove her tonsils, not replace her liver. She will be taking extremely expensive immune-suppressant drugs for the rest of her life, but at least now she has a life. Last week, that was very much in doubt. We have seen the best and the worst of the U.S. medical system, talented and caring doctors and nurses who not only took excellent care of Elizabeth, but who also explained what the challenges were and what they were doing about it in a way that we could understand. And now the challenge of paying for it and all the immune suppression drugs that she'll need to take for the rest of her life. It's going to be tough without insurance. But let me close this on a positive note. Lifeline of Ohio makes it possible for us to write a letter to the donor's family to express our gratitude for their family member who, in death, provided the liver that is now part of my daughter and will give her another chance at life. You will have a chance at Spare Parts, which is only on the website. This week, the Weather Channel adds lots of non-weather components to its app, and mindfulness is helpful for adults. Maybe it can help children, too. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.